Turn me again this morning to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 10. Ideas about marriage 
They are terribly unbiblical. They are destructive of, of families and God's design for marriage. Uh, parallel to um, changes maybe we've seen more recently in our society. There's nothing new. Throughout all of history, marriage has faced two enemies. There's just the sinful tendencies and temptations that every human has to uh, uh, wrestle with or has to, to violate uh, what he knows or she knows about marriage. The other enemy has always been varying degrees of distortions and misunderstandings and assumptions about marriage uh, in a broader culture, what it is and what it's for. Uh, marriage holds for us and for our children, our families, some of the greatest potential that we have as humans for uh, showing and living out the gospel and experiencing God's blessings and relationships. It also holds some of the greatest potential uh, for misery and for degradation of God's good design uh, and of our relationships as well. Uh, so marriage and divorce are, are crucial topics for us to understand and to address. I think they're topics that the church, at least at times, has not adequately addressed the, the, the broader church. Uh, just one other word by way of introduction uh, before we look at this passage uh, particularly. Some of you this morning uh, here have experienced the pain of divorce uh, in various ways in your past. Maybe in your own marriage or your parents' marriage. Um, you've experienced that grief in a significant way. Uh, to speak clearly about these topics is not to, to minimize or to ignore uh, that, um, that grief. Uh, often divorce, I think, is not discussed perhaps as it should be in the church to avoid uh, that, to avoid giving offense, and that, that is a, a good motive. In, in one sense, we must be sensitive to uh, each other's experiences and sins in the past. We all have those in various ways. Uh, but that avoidance can be costly as well. Um, and so I, I just want to say up front, the goal of this passage, uh, the goal of our discussion, um, is not to pile on guilt for past failures or, or bring up grief, that kind of thing. We won't be discussing at length um, healing and forgiveness and that kind of thing. It's not Jesus' um, topic or focus here. There's no question that there's forgiveness in Christ for anything, everything, any sin. Um, turn back to chapter 3, verse 28, if you want to be reminded of Jesus himself saying that. Um, but our purpose here will be to reflect what Jesus is teaching on the purpose and design of marriage, and also uh, just the, the relation of divorce uh, to marriage uh, as, a, as a reality, destructive reality in, in a form of world. Let's consider first, uh, number one in your outline, uh, the, the controversy uh, over marriage that comes up here. And, uh, it's been a little while since we've been in our series in Mark. Um, first one is tells us where Jesus and disciples are going now, and just remind you that the movement now in, in the Gospel of Mark, sent a couple of chapters ago, is, is all towards Jerusalem. The, the whole story is going towards Jerusalem and Jesus' um, sacrifice there. Um, there's some familiar themes here in the, the setting of verse 1, the crowds gathering around Jesus, and Mark tells us that Jesus is teaching them. And also somewhat unique to Mark, different from Matthew and Luke. Mark will tell us when Jesus is teaching, but then he doesn't tell us anything that Jesus was teaching. 
Uh, Mark and Luke include long sermons of Jesus. Uh, Matthew and Luke, Mark, Mark generally does not. Um, but he tells us about this, this interaction, uh, the controversy that comes up when the Pharisees came to Jesus, verse 2, testing him, began to ask him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. A few things about this, this question. Uh, I think we, we can confidently say that the Pharisees are not asking whether uh, divorce is lawful at all. Um, all of our evidence of, of that culture um, points to the, the fact that all Jews assumed that divorce was lawful, at least under some circumstances. Uh, they differed on, on when and why. Um, I'll get to that in just a moment. But in, in, importantly, in Matthew's parallel account of this, uh, the question put to Jesus uh, in a slightly longer form um, is whether it's lawful for a man to divorce a wife for any and every reason, uh, is how it's stated in Matthew's parallel. So Mark tells us here that the Pharisees come to Jesus with not just a genuine, humble question, uh, but as usual, a, a test, uh, a trap, really. Um, they're trying to trap him on a disputed question about when, when divorce is lawful. Um, what, what was the test? What was the trap they were trying to lay? Well, there, we don't know exactly, but there are a couple of possibilities. Um, one is that Jesus is now in the region where Herod lived. And remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, uh, why it was John the Baptist was executed. It was for preaching, for speaking clearly against Herod's marriage. Herod had divorced his wife. Uh, his uh, sister-in-law had divorced Herod's brother so that the two of them could be married. Herod married, Herod married his, his sister-in-law. Um, and, and John the Baptist spoke clearly about that uh, being wrong, being immoral, and that was ultimately why Herod, why, why John the Baptist was executed. So it, it seems very plausible that Pharisees might hope that um, Herod might take care of their, their Jesus problem for them um, if they began to speak just as clearly about marriage. Uh, another possibility, and these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, uh, is, is these, these two schools of thought uh, among Judaism at that time. And they're trying to get Jesus to upset one side or the other. So, um, look at verse 3 and 4 real quick here. Jesus answers their question initially by saying, what did Moses command you? And he said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Uh, they're referring there to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which talks about divorce and, and writing a certificate of divorce. Uh, here's how that chapter begins, Deuteronomy 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house, no. and so on. And, and the dispute here, these two schools of thought, were really all over what that word indecent refers to. And there were uh, two, two famous rabbis that sort of headed up these two schools of thought. One was Rabbi Shammai. Uh, he was the, the more conservative camp on this. Uh, his teaching was, and those who followed him believed, uh, that that something indecent was simply adultery. Uh, it wasn't anything, anything less than that. Uh, then there was Rabbi Hillel, um, and his teaching was that anything indecent in Deuteronomy 24 was anything at all, anything that a, a spouse might uh, 
deemed to be uh, indecent or displeasing um, for, for any reason. Um, the Pharisees seem generally to be following that school, and as we consider later the disciples' response to Jesus, maybe the disciples as well, maybe this was the majority view uh, in Judaism, um, and seem to be saying to Jesus, look, Deuteronomy allows divorce, it says it's fine, you know, just make up a certificate, send your spouse away, and do you agree with that, Jesus? Let's look a little closer at how the Pharisees and, and other Jews as well, apparently we're reading God's word here, how they were really thinking backwards about God's design for marriage. Uh, number two on your outline. Uh, verse five, Jesus goes on uh, explaining that it was because of your hardness of heart that he, Moses, wrote you this commandment in Deuteronomy 24. He's, he's speaking to the, the intent, I mean really the, the real meaning, but also the intent of Deuteronomy 24. It's clearly not assuming divorce as some easy and normal part of marriage. What was the intent of Deuteronomy 24, the, the law of God there speaking about divorce and when it happens, this is what you're to do? Well, we can say it, at least it, it is keeping someone from a hasty and easy divorce. It's, it's keeping a, a man, maybe particularly from uh, an easy and hasty divorce, he has to make it official. He has to make it legal and binding on him and, and his wife by writing a certificate uh, with a stated reason on the certificate, uh, a legal and lawful reason. It also then would, would keep him from trying to remarry her later. If you read further in, in Deuteronomy 24, this is part of the purpose. He can't decide three months later that he was sorry for what he'd done and say, no, we're actually still married. There's this certificate that's been official. Um, she's protected from, from that. Um, the passage is not encouraging divorce. It's not even uh, permitting divorce per se, but rather describing how it must be handled uh, if, if it comes to that, if, if the marriage tragically comes to that. So here's the problem. The Pharisees are really reading the passage in Deuteronomy 24 about divorce as if it's teaching about marriage, which it's not. They're using that passage as a pretext for divorce as an allowance, as if this is what you're allowed to do with marriage if you want to. But the reality is that that law in Deuteronomy 24 is meant to limit something. Right? Not prescribe something. It's meant to limit the damage and the evil of, of divorce if, if it should happen. Uh, commentator Edwards said that the law of concession, not of intention. Um, he gives the illustration uh, you, you don't learn how to fly an airplane by studying the instructions for a crash landing. Right? That's, that's sort of bad backwards. The instructions for a crash landing are what happens if. You know, the goal of flying uh, ends and comes to a, a tragic and destructive end. This is what you do now. Uh, conceptually similar, I think, to um, uh, the way another Bible passage is misread even today in our popular culture. So um, we, we hear the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's God's law in the Old Testament. Um, it's understood in, in our popular culture, I think even by many Christians, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, as, a, as prescriptive for brutal revenge. 
right? You did this to me, I get to do this to you. Um, that's not at all the, the meaning or, or the spirit of, of that passage. Um, in the Old Testament, it's a limiting law. Um, just like this law in divorce. It's, it's limiting, it's providing certain protections. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is actually a protection as it's given, a protection for the offender. Um, revenge is never allowed in the Bible at all. Um, this law is a proportional limit on punishment. So the idea is if someone harms you, knocks out your tooth, say, uh, you, of course, may do nothing in response. Revenge is always against God's law. But, but the proper authorities may not give that person a life sentence or chop his leg off or something like that. They, can, they may only do something up to or something equivalent to taking his tooth. That's it. That's what that, that's what that law means. It's a, it's a limiting law, protecting law. There's also sort of a parallel in Jesus' question, or Peter's question elsewhere to Jesus about forgiveness. Uh, how many times do I really have to forgive Jesus? Uh, in other words, when can I stop? Um, when Jesus points into the foundation, the purpose of forgiveness, which, which teaches us not to ask such questions about limits, right? As if, when can I escape this thing that I don't like doing anymore? Um, and rather ask, who am I in relation to my forgiving God? And, and what does that require of me? As, as painful as that might be. So, back to Mark 10, Jesus is reorienting the way that the Pharisees are looking at marriage as, as a sort of disposable contract, reading it backwards, reading divorce into the, the very character of marriage, and looking at it from the front, from, from God's design, God's purpose. So let's consider number three on your outline. Jesus goes on, going back to the beginning. Verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God is joined together. Let no man separate. Jesus goes back to the foundation, the purpose of marriage. It's a permanent covenant relationship. It's not a disposable contract. It's a, a covenant relationship. Just reflecting on the, the Ten Commandments relative to what Jesus is telling the Pharisees here is, is important. You know, the, one, the one family relationship that gets its way into the Ten Commandments is parents and children. Right? Children honor your father and your mother. But here, Jesus speaks about children leaving their parents for a relationship with marriage. Which is a, in some ways, a priority of marriage, even over the parent-child relationship. But the word that Jesus uses in verse 7 there is a strong, decisive word. It, it can even be translated in some places as forsake or abandon. Right? And, and we understand he's, he's not saying that Someone abandons their, their parents in every sense and doesn't continue to honor them. Um, in verse 7, if you have another translation from what I'm reading, you probably have what's just in a note here at the bottom of the NAS. Um, and shall cling to his wife. And shall cling to his wife. That, that Greek word can be translated glue or cement. And even stronger, Jesus says, 
the two become one. One flesh. This is the, the closest, most intimate union on earth. Marriage is closer than the closest friends, closer than siblings, closer in significant ways than parents and children. A relationship that is intended to change. Jesus concludes again in verse 9, but therefore God is joined together with no man separate. That's, that's where you begin to understand what marriage is. This is why God says to Malachi, I hate divorce. This is what marriage is. Is that how you think about marriage? Is that really how you think about marriage? Do you resist and lament all distortions of that, of that design, of God's design for marriage. The, the Jews here, even though they're still committed to God's word in significant ways, they, they seem largely to have adopted assumptions about marriage from the culture around them. And we can do the same thing. Um, one way to state what, what Jesus is saying here in part is that divorce is not part of marriage. Divorce is not a part of marriage. That, that's, how, that's how our society views it now, largely. We need to be careful not to adopt that thinking that divorce is, is part of marriage from the beginning. It's, it's not a, a loophole or an out that gives you some kind of assurance or insurance as, as you go into it. Thinking of divorce as, as part of marriage is sort of like thinking of excommunication as part of church membership. Right? As if we say, well, well, I guess we'll let this family in because, you know, we've always got excommunication in our back pocket if we need it. No, it's, it's not part of the motivation or part of the definition um, at all for church membership or for marriage. Is it, you know, why I feel safe marrying this guy because I can always divorce him if I have to. It's not part of our approach, part of our definition, part of the essence of marriage. Marriage is divinely instituted, permanent covenant. Period. Something that um, traditional marriage vows affirm uh, very, very importantly. Uh, we don't get our traditional marriage vows from the Bible, but they reflect what biblical marriage, what a biblical wedding is very carefully. Um, it's a promise of, those vows are a promise of future faithfulness, of future love, uh, no matter what, in sickness and in health, the richer for poor, till death do us part. It's become very popular now to write your own vows, um, and these, these modern wedding vows that people just come up with, they're very emotive, they're just descriptive, sort of, of what's going on, um, like, I love you and I want to be with you forever, uh, kind of statements. Those things are obvious. You know, if you're up front at a wedding and you're marrying someone, it's obvious you like them, you, you have warm feelings and that kind of thing, right? Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, ultimately, in terms of what, what marriage is and what a wedding is about, um, what happens when you don't feel that way anymore? Or have those desires anymore? Well, you just leave. You're free to leave. That's the assumption, I think. Traditional vows, again, are promises of future faithfulness. I vow to be faithful. Um, however miserable that may be, 
for various reasons. You know, just imagine putting contingencies into wedding vows. Uh, in sickness and in health, you know, with the exception of terminal illness or anything that otherwise changes my standard of living. Um, for richer or for poorer, as long as our income doesn't dip below you know, the amount stated at the bottom here. Um, you know, those things sound kind of ridiculous, but this is the understanding of marriage that we live and, and I would suggest those contingencies are actually sort of assumed in the modern emotive sort of I love you, I have warm and fuzzy feelings right now, and I want to be with you forever kind of kind of marriage vows. Uh, divorce is not part of the marriage. What other ways are Christians susceptible to adopting the assumptions of the world as as the Pharisees had here about what marriage and the family are? Um, last week there's huge attention to uh, a, a case in the Supreme Court on, on abortion uh, and hopes among many believers that um, Roe v. Wade might be overturned uh, at the end of this next session. Uh, Christians have rightly lamented, prayed about, and discussed and protested the, the destructive policy of abortion for the last 49 years, since 1973. Um, and what that does to family. Christians have consistently opposed the practice, the destructive of God's design of marriage, that, that is homosexual marriage and practice. Um, protested, lamented the Obergefell decision in 2015. Um, but relative to those issues, I would suggest evangelicals have largely ignored the issue of divorce. In, in practice, or in, in terms of policy, or concern for our nation's policy about these things. Divorce, again, has always been a part of human society, but four years before Roe v. Wade, it was, uh, divorce was legalized and normalized in a way in our country uh, as never before. No fault divorce uh, allows and normalizes really what the Pharisees were assuming about marriage here in this passage, that, that one spouse can just get rid of another spouse um, for any reason or no reason at all, and, and that bond of marriage can be destroyed in, in an instant. On September 4th, 1969, uh, the first no-fault divorce law in our country was, was signed into law by Ronald Reagan. Uh, that became the, the deepest root of the destruction of biblical marriage in our nation by far. Uh, compared to any other legal changes or anything you've seen in recent years. And in the 1950s, just to illustrate that, in the 1950s, 10% of children would go on to see their parents divorce. So one out of every 10. Uh, by the 1970s, just after that first no-fault divorce law, I mean, it spread to all the other states quickly. Uh, that skyrocketed to 50%. One out of every two children would see their children, their, their parents divorce. That same statistic persists to, to today, um, including 20% of children without uh, a father uh, in their family uh, at all. Uh, there are 18 states today, uh, including the state of Colorado, where it's actually illegal if, if you go through divorce, it is illegal to state a reason for divorce, as you biblically must. You biblically must have a reason, a reason, but it's illegal in our state to give that reason, to have a reason. 
Bible. Today, again, many Christians spend a lot of time and, and breath lamenting uh, gay marriage, ignoring the fact, perhaps, that a supposedly conservative, supposedly Christian governor many years ago signed the law to rule more than anything else in our nation's history. That would tear apart the families of half of our nation's children. In it's just one, one sobering example, I think, of how we can easily adopt the assumptions uh, of our culture uh, and need to hear Jesus as the Pharisees did. So are you treating marriage not necessarily your own, but just the institution, uh, the policies we have around us as godless? How often do we talk about divorce? You know, it's difficult. Do we communicate to our children that the deadly seriousness and the, the unconditional binding nature of marriage? Uh, why do we, again, why do we elevate the, the yes, marriage designed to destroy instead of homosexuality above, for some reason, the, the family destroying fact and sin of divorce? Especially as it relates to our nation's laws. What to consider fourthly then? Marriage in the grace of God, fourthly outline. Verse 10, the disciples uh, were with Jesus back in the house, and this is always a setting in Mark for, uh, usually a setting for Jesus talking with disciples privately and, and teaching them further. Uh, they're questioning him further, it says. Um, it doesn't tell us what they ask exactly. Um, but we can guess that they're, they're struggling with what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Um, he's just made a very strong, clear statement in, in verse 9. And then in verse 11 and 12, in response to their questions, he, he seems to say, yes, you, you heard me right. Um, husbands and wives are not to divorce. In fact, if you, if you set aside your marriage to go marry someone else, even if you went through a divorce, even if you had a certificate and everything, you're, you're committing adultery, essentially. I mean, in Matthew's parallel account, he gives, he gives us a little bit more detail about this interaction here. It's very telling as to how both how strong and restrictive Jesus' statement was and, and came off to the disciples and where they're coming from as well. Uh, Matthew 19 is the, the parallel. And the disciples said to him, after his teaching, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That, that was their response, given their understanding of marriage. Jesus, you know, any marriage is difficult. If there's, if there's no way out of a horribly difficult, painful marriage, Jesus, maybe it's not worth it. Why should anyone even get married? Now, Mark's account here does sound like Jesus is allowing for no legitimate grounds for divorce. Uh, and there are, there are churches that teach that. That is their position, that there is no divorce. Uh, there is no legitimate uh, divorce. So there is no circumstances where a believer can rightly pursue divorce. So uh, that's not the biblical position. It's, it's, it, we accordingly have the Matthew 19 parallel because there... Again, it's a little bit longer. Uh, it includes Jesus saying, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. 
and marries another. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. And that's the the one exception that's reflected elsewhere in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 24, Jesus is affirming that understanding of Deuteronomy 24. Um, but stating clearly that adultery is the only grounds for divorce between believers. And people will say, well, what about, what about this circumstance? What about that difficult circumstance? And you have to ask, well, do you think, do you think Jesus forgot to mention something? I don't think he did. I think he was speaking very clearly and definitively about marriage. There is in the Bible, and in Paul's writing, uh, one other instance in which he says divorce is permissible for, for a believer. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7. And that is if an unbeliever, if, if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, that is, they, they go away. They don't want to be married anymore. They, they, they leave geographically. They're, they're gone. Um, uh, and and I, I don't count this as another grounds for divorce so much as Paul saying uh, just confirming what has de facto happened to a believer. Your, your spouse has left. They are not in Christ. You're, you're, you can, you can um, you know, finalize this divorce which has sort of already happened. But how different from our culture's view of marriage uh, is that? It's as a, as a covenantally, permanently binding relationship for better or for worse. How different, sadly, from uh, some professing Christians' casual attitude towards the divorce. I think that we're meant to have the same kind of, uh, given the understanding of marriage in our society, I think we're meant to have the same kind of solemn shock that the disciples did when, when Jesus taught about blessed marriage and what it really was. When they said, why should anyone even get married today? Your children need to have that same kind of solemn impression made on them, I, I would suggest, in helping them understand what marriage is. You who are not yet married need to have that same kind of solemn impression on you. Well, that brings us logically to the question that I want to consider finally is how how can marriage be so binding? Why why is it that this is the nature of marriage? And it's Ephesians five and other places in the scriptures, but especially Ephesians five makes clear that it's because marriage reflects the relationship of God to you, His people. It reflects the unconditional, self-sacrificial, painful, long-suffering love and commitment of God to you. It reflects grace. The, the unconditional, covenantal commitment of God's grace to you. Not only did God literally die for you, He continues to be faithful through all of your sin, through all of your unfaithfulness, to the end and forever. That's what marriage is to be a picture of. Your marriage is to be a microcosm then of, of your cross-bearing, self-denying commitment to Jesus. And as you respond to his, his perfect commitment in that way to you. One, one commentator puts the challenge this way, will we seek relief in what is permitted 
as the Pharisees did. When we seek relief in what is permitted, or commit ourselves to what is intended. We have to recognize marriage, that the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. Right? I hope that it does. It, it, uh, it, it is intended to in one sense, but that is not the first purpose of marriage. It is to make you holy and to show the sacrificial, unconditional grace of God to your spouse first and, and to others who witness your marriage. And also just want to close by saying that marriage also, beyond picturing that grace of God, it also points us, those of us who are in the marriage, it points us to the grace of God that we need for marriage. And we, we cannot um, live out our marriages in that way without the grace of God. We cannot do that in our effort, in our own effort. Our relationship to God, our salvation, Him does not depend on that. It's a response to what He's already done for us. By His grace. Marriage is and can be experienced as an enormous blessing during great joy and security and so on, but, but no marriage is easy. Loving someone that you live with and know intimately all of their faults, loving them unconditionally and constantly and sacrificially in a way that reflects Jesus uh, is, is so hard. In fact, it's, it's impossible. We can't, we can't even understand that conceptually without Jesus and His grace. We can't do it in practice without the grace of God. Let's, let's pray together to that grace. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus here on marriage today. Thank you for the ways that perhaps this um, shocks us and wakes us up in, in contrast to uh, the understanding and assumptions of marriage around us that prevail around us. Pray that we would see our marriages as a, a key place that we can respond to and show your grace to us in a powerful way. First to our spouse and to our children, also to those around us who perhaps don't know you. Pray that you would strengthen and support the marriages that are represented here in our congregation. Those who are not yet married, that you would prepare them with this kind of understanding of, of what marriage is to, to your glory and to the good of your kingdom. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.